The following podcast contains explicit content and is not suitable for all listeners. On June 13, 1996, an 18-year-old woman was getting ready for bed in her apartment when she was viciously attacked, raped, and murdered. Police quickly honed in on a 19-year-old acquaintance and theorized he took part in the murder along with another accomplice, as his DNA did not match semen found at the scene. For 20 years, an innocent man sat in prison, desperately proclaiming his innocence, while her mother and police continued to search for her other attacker. He was eventually released in 2017, but in 2019, her real killer was finally revealed. This is the story of Angie Dodge. The last episode I covered, the story of Suzanne Bombardier, It has similarity to this episode as they were both cold cases that used DNA to solve them decades later. I find that happens a lot while researching. I tend to get drawn to similar cases. However, while I was planning to cover this case over the next couple of months, I chose instead to cover it this week because of a comment I recently received. In episode 24, the story of Lauren Burke I made reference to an ongoing debate about the death penalty, which is discussed in multiple sources in regards to that case in particular. I was not in any way stating that her murderer could potentially be innocent, as that case is absolutely cut and dry, and her murderer is 100% guilty. But I did express how I can see both sides of the argument, And as I've never lost anyone close to me in such a senseless and violent way, I can't speak to the emotions a family goes through and how one might feel after enduring such tragedy. While I don't personally agree with the death penalty, I definitely understand why some could. I'm not told my story yet, and maybe one day I will when I'm ready, but But my abuser died a number of years ago, and while I thought I'd healed and moved on, his death left me with a variety of emotions, but one of them being relief. More so because I knew he wouldn't be able to hurt anyone else ever again, and if I'm being honest, I hardly think of him at all now that he's gone. So again, I can see it from both sides, and even though I don't condone it myself, I absolutely understand that desire to have that person gone forever. But the main reason I don't agree with the death penalty and the main reason for states and countries abolishing it is because of wrongful convictions. In this story, a young man was coerced into a confession and convicted at trial without a shred of evidence or DNA linking him to her rape or murder. He was sentenced to 20 years to life for the murder and 10 years for rape. He was eventually released from prison after the rape charge was thrown out upon appeal, as he had already served 20 years by that point. But it would still be two years later until he would be exonerated of the crimes and his name cleared. 
While many inmates sit on death row for decades awaiting execution, and you hope by then that all avenues have been appealed and exhausted to ensure the correct person is in fact in there, it's not always the case. And one wrongful execution is one too many. Quote, the death penalty carries the inherent risk of executing an innocent person. Since 1973, at least 187 people who had been wrongly convicted and sentenced to death in the U.S. have been exonerated. End quote. This is not to detract from Angie's story, and frankly, I don't want to start a debate about it, and it's not my intention. We are all entitled to our own opinions. I just couldn't ignore the overlap of this case with that recent comment, which, by the way, was not at all wrong or inappropriate for that person to make. It was just simply a misunderstanding, and it has now been resolved. But I just felt I needed to clarify that statement in case anyone else misunderstood where I was coming from or what I was trying to say in that episode. And since this case heavily focuses on wrongful conviction, speaking to the death penalty debate is unavoidable. Angie Ray Dodge was born on December 21, 1977 to parents Carol and Jack Dodge in Vancouver, Washington in the United States. Her parents and siblings, three brothers named Brent, Todd, and Roger, all moved to Idaho Falls in the state of Idaho. And that's where my research says that she grew up. A bit about Idaho and Idaho Falls for those of you like me who have not been there before. Idaho is a state in the Pacific Northwest, bordered by Oregon and Washington State to the west, Montana to the northeast, Wyoming to its east, Nevada and Utah to its south, and a small border with British Columbia, Canada to its north. So it's a fairly large area, the 14th largest state to be exact. But it's just right next door from Washington State, where Angie was born. Idaho Falls is the second largest city in Idaho, Boise being the first and the state capital. And it has an estimated population of 62,888 as of 2019. I've heard that the landscape in Idaho is breathtaking in areas, and according to Wikipedia, it is a rugged landscape with, quote, some of the largest unspoiled natural areas in the United States, end quote. If you know more about Idaho or Idaho Falls, please leave a comment on my Instagram page at femicide underscore podcast. I'd love to get more information about it. According to her obituary, Angie was born Angie, and it's not short for anything like Angela, as you'd sort of expect it to be. It also shared some insight into her as a person, which I always try to speak to in my podcast whenever possible. These women deserve to be remembered for more than the crime that happened to them. Angie's family remembers her as having, quote, an infectious smile and a vivacious personality, and always had a hug for everyone she came in contact with. She was known for her compassionate heart and an in-depth understanding and loved every walk of life. She was intelligent, with great ambitions, and goal-oriented with dreams of becoming an entrepreneur in the business world. 
She graduated with honors from Idaho Falls High School in 1995 and continued her education for a short time at Idaho State University. She was employed at Beauty for All Seasons at the time of her death. Angie loved children and tutored them in reading and math. Angie had incredible artistic abilities and a passion for poetry and creative writing, end quote. Her best friend, Jessica, adding, quote, She didn't put up with people's crap. She was very smart and one of the only people in our group to graduate high school, end quote. In May of 1996, she moved into her very first apartment at the age of 18, eager to get out of her family home and embrace the next stage of her life in a more central part of Idaho Falls. She settled on a second-floor, one-bedroom apartment in a building in the north of the city and was so excited to be on her own. Although her mother was hesitant to her living alone, she supported her daughter. Angie had split with her boyfriend a few weeks prior and leaned on her mother for support, her mother remembering, quote, She told me it was so hard growing up. She just put her head on my shoulder, and we kind of just rocked back and forth, end quote. This was on the last visit Angie would have with her mother, just the night before her death, on June 12, 1996. Her mother stating, quote, She threw me a kiss when she coasted out of the driveway. Her last words to me were, I love you. I just had no idea what was about to happen. I look at it now as a God-given moment, and I am so grateful that we got to have it. I hadn't seen her in three weeks. She was 18 and wanted to be left to grow up on her own. But when she came over, it was like nothing was wrong. It was just normal. End quote. The next morning, on June 13, 1996, Angie did not show up for work, which was unlike her. Her colleagues tried to call her, but she didn't answer, and after some tries, the two friends went to check on Angie. They entered to find a full ashtray and plastic cups on the outside deck and some garbage in bags beside the stove. It stated she had a small gathering the night before, although I'm not sure when she left her mother's or the timing of the night's events. They made their way to the bedroom and opened the door to find the most gruesome scene they would ever see a sight that has likely haunted them to this day. I'd like to take this moment to thank you for listening to my podcast. I've recently noticed an increase in listeners, and I just really want to say thank you for listening. And please keep sharing these stories, and let's keep these conversations going. Femicide is very close to my heart, and I hope we can continue to shed a light on the abuse, violence, and sexual assault that women face daily. This podcast is 100% a woman-run operation. I write, record, and edit every single episode myself. And as I mentioned recently in a previous episode, I have brought on someone to help with research on some upcoming episodes to help me out and to help continue to share these important stories. To help support me and my efforts, I have started a Patreon account. If you aren't familiar with Patreon, it is a membership-based platform designed to allow fans to support and connect with their favorite creators. Sign up today online at patreon.com or via the Patreon app, and I will leave a link in the show notes of this episode. As always, I will be donating 10% of all gifts received and memberships each month to various charities that help support women. 
The charity I will be donating to for the month of April 2022 is Women Abuse Council of Toronto. Quote, Women Act works collaboratively to eradicate violence against women through community mobilization, coordination, research, policy, and education. End quote. Gifts, while deeply appreciated, are not the only way you can show support. It would mean a lot if you would subscribe to my podcast and leave a review, as it really helps to bring awareness to these stories. And please don't forget to share with your friends and families, because word of mouth is the best review of all. Angie was found face up beside her bed, with her head against the wall. The bed and floor under her were soaked in blood, and her favorite teddy bear was laying beside her. She had fought back. Her t-shirt was torn. But sadly, she had been stabbed 16 times. Her throat slit and she had been raped. Police went to work quickly collecting evidence and concluded that she had been killed sometime in the early hours of June 13, 1996. The breakthrough for the case came when they found a semen sample at the scene. A DNA expert that worked on the case stated, quote, It was a very good one. There was a neat semen sample taken directly from the victim's body. It was a really good sample, a pristine profile, end quote. I know I mentioned previously about the person who spent 20 years in prison for Angie's murder. Well, that person was Christopher Tapp. Some reports state he was 17 at the time, while others state he was 19 or 20. I think he was in fact 19 when the murder happened, but I'm not 100% sure. Chris was an acquaintance of Angie, and the police narrowed in on him. They honed in on him and questioned him beyond any reasonable measure, given the facts. They gave him polygraphs and began leading the questions, until a young, high school dropout with below-average intelligence finally admitted to killing 18-year-old Angie. Chris was a part of a group known as the River Rats, that hung out by the river and drank and smoked and basically wasted time. He had been in some trouble, but nothing worth noting, and definitely nothing suggesting he was capable of rape or murder. But he did know Angie. He was a part of a rougher type of group, and Angie apparently hung out there too at times. Months had passed without any concrete suspects, and Angie's mom, Carol, took it upon herself to offer a reward flyer and question people, she pushed police to find a suspect, as did the community that was still fearful of a killer being out there. Seven months after the murder, Chris's best friend, Benjamin Hobbs, was arrested for raping a woman at knife point in Nevada, and this led police to believe that Chris must have been at the scene when Angie was murdered, and they began building the case around him. The police also theorized that at least two people were involved in the attack and that Chris participated but did not leave the semen and that Benjamin was the main culprit. Honestly, this makes me sick. Could he have been a part of it? I mean, technically, anyone could have when you theorize that two people committed the crime but only one person left behind the semen. Then, yes, anyone could have done it, 
any one of the river rats or a pair of friends or acquaintances of Angie or Benjamin could have done it. But when you build a case around a suspect, when you make the evidence fit a particular suspect, you aren't doing a proper investigation. I think the police were desperate to satisfy the public and Carol, and so they made it fit. But they could have just as easily said, Benjamin Hobbs did it with another accomplice. I don't know what made them believe so wholeheartedly it was Chris that was there, enough to question him the way that they did. But they did. Chris was questioned for more than 100 hours and gave six different versions of events. Even though he repeatedly stated he didn't know what happened, that he was with a girl that evening and didn't do it, he eventually caved and told police what they wanted to hear. Quote, I was broken. There is no other way to explain it. I was just broken and confused and scared. I just wanted to get away from them. I just gave them whatever information they wanted because I thought it would get me out of the situation. I tried to save myself and just continued to put myself further and further down the rabbit hole. Then they actually charged me. It was heartbreaking. I knew that this might be the end. End quote. The police initially said they would give Chris immunity if he confessed, but when neither his nor Benjamin's DNA came back as a match, they began theorizing a third person was involved. The police then voided Chris's immunity, stating he wasn't forthcoming and had misled the investigation. Without a shred of physical evidence and a retracted confession, Chris was still sentenced to 30-plus years in prison. Speaking to my previous topic of the death penalty, Chris stated, quote, One thing that I never really talk about is the fact that they asked for the death sentence. They actually asked to kill me, end quote. Which again, in a rape and murder case in a state that has the death penalty, it isn't wrong to ask for. But to sentence a barely 20-year-old guy who was coerced into a false confession with no physical evidence linking him to the crime, that's scary. Because then it could happen to anyone. Chris was adamant he was not involved. But Carol believed the police. She believed he was present at Angie's murder and that he knew who left the semen. She was frustrated and couldn't understand why he wouldn't just give up the name. And she even wrote him to try and persuade him. For years and years, Carol fought to find out who the other man was. She wouldn't let her daughter's murderer go free. Over the years, other suspects were questioned and different trails and leads were explored. DNA testing had advanced too, and familial DNA was now being used to try and solve cold cases. Carol wanted the true murderer to pay, and in that quest, she came across Chris's confession tapes, which were given to her from a local newspaper. She knew immediately it wasn't right and got some expert opinions. It was clear he didn't know anything and that he was led into confessing by the police. Finally, she spoke to Chris and screamed at him to just tell her the truth, and he said 
he wasn't there at the scene of the murder and that he didn't know who did it. Carol finally believed him and went public stating that she believed he was innocent and wrongly convicted. Chris was eventually freed from prison but was still considered a convicted murderer due to a lack of evidence proving his innocence, which again is innocent until proven guilty. Reasonable doubt is a lack of evidence proving guilt, not proving innocence, and we have to stop allowing those to be reversed in this justice system. Carol again didn't give up. While Chris wasn't fully cleared and she wanted to prove his innocence, it was because she wanted to find the real killer, and for that to happen, he needed to be cleared. The investigation needed to change direction, and it did. A new police chief and collaboration from a new DNA expert named C.C. Moore, combined with the newer familial DNA searches and genetic genealogy, led to a new suspect. The family tree of Clarence Usury was found to be linked to the DNA found on Angie Dodge, and six men were identified, all coming back as not a match, until a seventh man, born from a short-lived marriage and whose information was harder to come by, was finally identified. That man was Brian Lee Drips Sr., who just so happened to live across the street from Angie at the time of the murder. Brian was immediately a prime suspect, and police began following him. Just one hour after surveillance began, he threw out his cigarette butt from his car window, and upon testing it, it was confirmed that Brian Lee Drip Sr. was in fact a match for the DNA found on Angie Dodge. He was arrested, and after about five hours of questioning, he confessed to the rape and murder of Angie, stating, quote, You got me dead right on the DNA, end quote, and verified that he acted alone. Brian is currently awaiting trial and has pled not guilty and faces the death penalty. When told who was actually responsible for her daughter's murder, Carol stated, Quote, Johnson said the new suspect was Brian Lee Drips Sr., and I practically came off my chair. I said, Brian Drips? You've got to be shitting me. I begged them to take his DNA at the time, and they told me to let them do their jobs. I'm still angry over it. I'm angry at what they did to me when they could have solved this case 23 years ago. I'm angry at those two cops who didn't even write a field report when they spoke to him. He was right there all along. I sat in front of his house for hours right after we buried Angie. I drove over to her apartment just to sit and look at her bedroom window, and I was sitting in front of his house. It was so close, but yet so far. End quote. Chris Tapp was finally exonerated after Brian's arrest and is officially a free man. Brian Drips Sr. has finally been held accountable for his crimes and letting an innocent man take the fall for a vicious attack that he committed. Carol Dodge finally has peace, knowing her daughter's real killer is known and can rest after 20 years of fighting for the truth. But at the end of the day, it's Angie Dodge, a bright and vibrant young woman, who lost her life at just 18 years old with her future at her fingertips.
and it's her memory that must live on. Thank you for listening to the story of Angie Dodge. I'm your host, Sean Marie. Join me next time for another story.